0: Do you know how we fund the program, Going Off Track?
1: There's one source of income for us, and that is patreon.com slash Track. Patreon? Stop making up words.
0: <laughs> it's a great place. We do a weekly Thursday night fireside chat. Brad takes all the embarrassing things I say in podcasts that he doesn't put into podcasts and puts it on the Patreon. Funny pictures of Brad in the 90s, usually naked or wearing a wristband. Please sign up. Brad, what's the address?
1: Patreon.com slash going (laughs) off track. Three, two, one. Intros. Introductions.
0: Introductions of the podcast. This
1: is the official introduction to.
0: <laughs> uh, Brad, <laughs> you know what this interview made me think of uh, and made me realize it's maybe possible again. I had started to abandon the idea that I may be able to get an honorary college degree without going to college, Oh, which is one of my goals in life, you yeah. know? yeah. Yeah, I'd, anywhere too. Community doesn't matter. I want some institution to just give me an honorary degree without having to take like intermediate algebra. How
1: About school of rock. No, 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 a <laughs> real one. A, a a
0: an institution of note. Okay. So, when we we're doing this interview, I'm thinking and I'm like, "Wait. Joe Gittleman does have a college degree. Mm. And now he's a professor in northern Vermont. I looked at his class schedule." But what made me think of that was he said he he has hired people he knows as like adjunct professors <laughs> yeah. to teach other classes about music and stuff. There you go. And I'm like, you know what? I'm only 40. There's still a road here. <laughs> like a bunch of people I know are probably going to get old, go into maybe academia. And who knows? Maybe a door is going to open. So I had kind of thrown this out. And now the interview with Joe's got me back into maybe... Being able to receive an honorary college degree.
1: Professor Horowitz. I mean, to the come podium. On. Sounds right, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it sounds perfect. Excuse me, Professor Horowitz.
0: My father's a Professor Horowitz for a long time. Makes sense. It sounds good. It sounds good. It does. I, I back it. It does. All right. So you think it's actually possible, or is this a pipe dream? I think anything is possible if you put your oh. mind to it. Oh, thanks, Brad. You're great. <laughs> There's something I got to come clean about, too, in the interview that I hid from Joe. Yeah. Which is, of course, I had to ask him about, like, the clueless thing. Because to child my age, like, that was very iconic, the <laughs> fact that the Mighty Mighty Bostones were in this, like, super contemporary pop culture movie, you know? Like, it was a big deal at the time. And I remember being excited about it. And as, like, a shitty... <laughs> you know, self-righteous little punk rock kid. I was mad at Dickie for crowd surfing in the movie. (laughs) I was like, dude, that's our thing, man. (laughs) Now all these fucking Alicia Silverstone fans are going to be crowd surfing. You know what? And they were, I I might've been right.
1: You were right.
0: Cause it did. The door opened after that. It sure did. If
1: it hadn't been Dickie, it would have been somebody. Exactly. So it,
0: soon enough, it would have been someone way less cool with way less cred, you know, because it's not like you can be like, oh, look at this poser crowd surfing. You know, <laughs> I can imagine he was like head walking on people in the early 80s in Boston, you know, yeah, from the sounds of it. Hell so, yeah,
1: dude.
0: I'm not going to say shit to him. <laughs> oh, shit. Sorry. Maybe I just did. But
1: well, my confession is that from the moment that I started considering booking Joe for this. Yeah, which is like whatever. Like a week out, Lean on Sheena would not leave my head. Every time I'm like doing oh, dishes man. or whatever, <sighs> like that song is in my head because I I wasn't bullshitting. I'm I. He gave me the CD like before it came out, and I went and saw those guys play with like Transplants and I think Lagwagon uh-huh. and Irving. It was a great show, and I really am an avoid one thing fan, and like. Oh yeah! As soon as I thought, as soon as I think of Joe Gittleman, that's what I thought of, and sure enough, like I, I, honestly, I, every moment it's in my it's in my head. It's so fucking catchy that song.
0: It is like a perfect song. Yeah, it's so good, and it gets me so worked up every time. Yeah, he's a genius with that stuff.
1: <laughs> he's a- So
0: I gotta talk. Do you know about the like random Mighty Mighty Boston's Gaslight connection? I do that happened? No. So it. You know, as we discussed in the interview, I, you know, the Boston's were one of my first real, like I said to Joe, one of my first introductions to like heavy music that wasn't like metal or grunge.
1: Right.
0: You know, I didn't really have a sense of like punk and hardcore yet. I was starting to get adjacent. I mean, I was little. I was like 11 or 12, you know. Mm. And, you know, I heard this band and I'm like, holy shit. And it was such an iconic band to me. And then years and years later, you know, we're in L.A. and we're recording 59 Sound with Ted Hutt, who, you know, through conversation and stuff like that, we discover is, you know, like these close personal friends with the Bostones. And, you know, of course, Dickie was out there at the time because of, uh, uh, you know, the late night show mm-hmm. and Joe Royce was out there. So we had this part in a song. I don't remember whose idea it was first. I mean, it's probably either Brian or Ted's and, and they were like, well, you think Dickie would do backups? And we're all like, no, no <laughs> chance. This Dickie Barrett, he's not going to come on our record. And sure enough, he did it. And it, it, he's the one doing those great backups on patient Ferris wheel on that record. Um, so as if it wasn't cool enough to have Dickie Barrett on my album, then we had this idea to, you know, uh, intro a song with a with a car starting the song Old White Lincoln, and guess who happened to be there that day it was Joe Royce with his classic car. I don't remember what it was, something real cool, sixties or seventies. He's outside of the studio, and we went and recorded his engine turning over <laughs> for the beginning of Old White Lincoln. So the that's, mighty mighty Boston's are all over the 50s That's pretty 70s. awesome.
1: Well, we're in the same club because Dicky sang on uh, a Clowns record too. Wow. Look at that. Yeah.
0: So we really are. We're like super fans. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. We're not usually unified super fans of, of an interviewee. <laughs> right. I, those guys, I mean, if I, mean, I mean, you don't like anything really that that was recorded after like 1978. But
1: let me tell you, like the boss Tones, having toured in a, in a, like they say, 12 guys in a van were the best band you could ever go on tour with because... Is that right? Oh, my God. Those guys took us on a couple of... Th- nothing huge. I think we did like a two-week and then like kind of a long weekend tour with them. Okay. And then some off... Some shows here and there. But like those guys, at the end of every show, they threw us their fucking... Their day room keys. Oh. So like those guys, for those of you who don't know, That's when you're huge. in a tour bus, huge. you always get like one or two hotel rooms when you get into town just to like... To take showers in essentially because everybody sleeps on the bus yeah you,
0: it's a shower room it's
1: a shower room so like we would get so like these, and an internet it's also an internet room now right right
0: it used to just be a shower room now it's like a shower room slash internet cafe so
1: yeah so these guys you know we'd be in in whatever like town and they'd still have keys to so these rooms that they'd gotten at like 10 o'clock in the morning and the, the beds hadn't even been slept in Oh yeah! So we and we would get two rooms for like there was probably four of us. I think it was three in the oh. band and then a merch guy. So it you was, like each got a bed. Yes, it was such oh, luxury, dude. Cushy, cushy, cushy. <laughs> Goodness! And since we're openers, we didn't have to make it in you know anywhere the next day. Like yeah. we fucking were the last oh. to sound check So You were so, hitting like hotel pools, oh, continental Breck. It was so good, cool. and we didn't oh. even we weren't paying for the rooms. We got you know if it had been us, we would have about got one room and had one guy on the floor or whatever. You know, huge. I know. Oh, they were so fucking. That's huge. Just the best. They were the best, I and love they it. took us on some it's really. Nice I mean, some really cool shows too. I mean, this was when, you know. Um, Impression was all over radio. So yeah, they, they were had, like, like
0: the height of their power. Dude,
1: we were playing like, yeah, we were playing like arenas, like hockey arenas upstate.
0: So cool. It was brilliant. Well, Love hearing the story too, I mean, you know, how deep they all, you know, especially Dickie and Joe go back into the, you know, old school Boston scene and where they yeah. came from and stuff. It's, I don't know, it's a great story. They they worked for it. They had something unique and they saw it through and it became it's the same as I think I mentioned they would Murder by death last week. It's like if anybody does anything remotely like this, they are just biting off the Boston's. Everybody <laughs> knows it, you know? Yeah. And in order to be that kind of band, it takes, takes gumption, you know? You have to, like, have a unique vision and see it through. So all the credit in the world. They you work know? their
1: ass off, too.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, let's listen to the interview with Joe.
2: I'm doing good. It's been a minute. Since Dickie's birthday, probably. Yeah,
0: so I haven't seen you in, what, six, seven years, that was?
2: Is it probably five, six, seven years? Man, those shows are so much fun. Yeah. Um, That was, yeah, it was cool. It was so great that you guys were able to jump on that.
0: I had a funny memory from that show, too, because I had to, you know, like, I I don't know if you all dealt with it since you're so hometown, but, you know, the the backstage was sort of in like the municipal complex. Mm. And
1: uh,
2: it was really,
0: yeah, like right in City Hall, like in the bowels of City Hall. So already Uh I felt like, uh uh-oh, I just don't feel comfortable in places like that. You know, I've been like a punk rocker too long. I think someone's out to get me. Uh And then I walked back and half of the staff was just slamming pizza back there. Mm-hmm. In a, in our little curtain area, yeah. And I was like, "Well, there's plenty of pizza. <laughs> <laughs> like, enjoy. You people seem very nice." And I actually took my stuff and left. So I have mm-hmm. no idea. Like, I think we actually set up a party for uh-huh. the employees of the show. That
2: uh-huh. that's hilarious. Yeah. So anyway, for the uh, this was uh, there's this I don't know what it was called. There's this there was this annual kind of like food beer thing taking place on Boston city hall plaza. And, and we got asked, to, we've been asked to play it a number of times, but one year we we're like, well, maybe we could do it and kind of rebrand it as something else. And so you know, right. we're not, nice enough to let us do that. And so whatever the event had been called for 20 years, that year was called Dickie Barrett's 50th birthday bash. So, yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, it was amazing that you guys were able to do it. <clears throat> Me and Benny actually did all that. It was kind of a, you guys had another gig if I recall, sort of that had just gone on sale or something you had to reschedule something that was in the in the neighborhood or something but
0: i yeah i don't recall that at all
2: well, I recall. Because, <laughs> I, I, I recall it was at Higher Ground in Burlington. I recall because ah. I'm I'm buddies with the guy who, who booked you there, and I, I had to go to him with my hat in my hand, saying, "Hey, you know that Gaslight show?" Ah. And because me and me and Benny were kind of scheming on the side about seeing if we could make it work.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. it was some, it was probably some bullshit radius clause or something. right?
2: Yeah, uh. or, I I think that you just rescheduled the date, and it was all it was all good yeah. as far as I know.
0: I love the Higher Ground as well. There's a spot you can get. Vermont maple syrup, right in the front parking lot. You know, <laughs> come yeah. on. Yeah.
2: So what's going on with you, Joe? I'm just hanging out. I'm in. Uh, I live in New Hampshire now. I yeah. still teach up in this music business program up at Northern Vermont University. In, yeah, in, in Vermont, and um, you know, been doing what you guys are doing. A lot of just trying to keep your sanity and uh. and do. F- creative things during all the you know all the stuff that's been going on and so how
0: how was your teaching uh how how um stunted was it and did you have to like uh convert to virtual and and stuff like that like everyone else
2: spring of 20 we went virtual but um fall of 20 and spring of 21 we were face to face but that's good that kind of that kind of came with a mix you know there are some students that were in quarantine and joining via zoom and it was sort of like some in the classroom some on on the zoom you know yeah yeah so a lot of challenges or whatever but dude tough to find anything to really complain about right to be honest with you
0: yeah if you're alive and kicking yeah. and, kick and working it's 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 all a bonus right yeah
2: and honestly i mean that the start of the lockdown was really the start of um the writing that led to the the, the our record that we put out on how uh, mm. eptaph um Not so long ago, was it, it was like an
0: impetus to write? Yeah, one hundred percent. You know, me,
2: me and dick were talking, and it was all kind of going down. And I don't know. I think we were both just feeling a little like, you know, what are we going to do with this time? Or feeling a little bummed out about things in general. And we just, you know, put our minds to it and and started doing a ton of ton of writing.
0: Well, how's that work these days for you all? Because I know, I mean, obviously, you started the band well before the days of sending files. And stuff to people and you had to actually mm-hmm. like, either get together or ship a demo or you know <laughs> play um, things up,
2: play things over the phone yeah right
0: right <laughs> yeah like how um how have you all uh it's great transferred over into that and are you full-on yeah, digital we, overlord now
2: well you know uh various degrees you know uh, <laughs> right at the high at the high end our guitar player lawrence has like a, a nice studio he lives in atlanta now Oh that's cool um and, uh, you know, I, I, I just do demos and garage band and stuff. And me and Dickie kind of bounce things back and forth and he has some ridiculous little app on his phone that lets him cut vocals and stuff. So we, we figure out a way and, you know, he sends me lyrics and it, what's
0: it's, the app called that he uses?
2: Uh, I, I have no idea. Yeah. He records on his so, phone. I, I can awesome. tell you it sounds like shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's always like, he's always in like some like empty storage space, cutting vocals, you know, it's
0: all.
2: Yeah. Like yeah. A, just a the idea. Yeah, that's all it ever is, you know. We're we're never gonna do anything with that stuff. It's just kind of like getting ideas together, you know.
0: Is the is you know aside from the the digital aspect, is the songwriting process for you all pretty similar to, yeah. to the beginning?
2: You know, I honestly like since the '90s we we had been kind of working this way. Everyone kind of had a home studio, and right. um, you know, we'd get together and and bang. Ideas out, but they kind of exist. The songs kind of exist by the time we're together in a room, you know? Right, right. So it was nothing new for us. And um, it was definitely cool to put, uh, to have something to put our energy toward. And, you, you know, we started talking with Epitaph and ended up going out. It was actually June of 2000 that I flew out to LA and, you know, everything was pretty well shut down at that point. Yeah, sure. Um, and, uh, but we got in the studio and, you know, we made it happen you know, some sharing files around with Lawrence, our guitar player. But for the most part, the core of us were all in the studio there for, you know, a month, six weeks or whatever it was.
0: And how did, uh, how did Tim, Tim Armstrong get involved in in all of it this time?
2: Uh, that Dickie called Brett, you know, it's not the first time we've talked to Tim and and Brett about the idea of doing things together. You know, the timing just wasn't right or whatever, for whatever reason, but it's always been something that has, held some interest for us. And so when Dickie reached out to Brett and I, I think he probably shared some demos or something, or basically, you know, said, said, we're excited about the music we're working on. And, um, Brett said, well, let's talk to Tim about it. Like Brett, Brett really wanted it to be a, a hellcat thing because when right. we were speaking to him about it last time, which was probably who even knows when 15 years ago, 10 years right. ago, um, that was sort of the plan, you know? And, um, you know, the idea of working with Tim, um seemed really cool to us. It was uh we had uh, an opportunity our our longtime producer Ted Hutt and, and Tim Armstrong co produced the record and, and Tim, nice. has, Tim has his Tim has his killer young engineer um DJ and Tim's got a great studio and it was you know it was an awesome vibe just like you'd think and um uh there are opportunities for Tim to pick up the guitar and it was great, you know. Yeah. It was it was cool to it was cool to work together for sure.
0: I had heard in another interview that um it might have been Dickie, but but he was crediting uh and out came the wolves with almost um giving you all a license to uh mm-hmm. to write real songs and to mm-hmm. write you know songy songs in the nineties yeah, right. and not not have like punk rock guilt about it
2: uh huh right that, there's a lot of there's a lot of song craft there in that record, obviously,
0: yeah, no those two rancid records i mean let's go and then out come the wolves you. Like as an adult, I like I. I think I just used to be excited when they when they were out. You know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I was a kid, and Let's Go was like one of my first summer driving around in people's cars, skateboarding uh-huh. kind of records. You know, I just wasn't listening to music like that. Yeah. And then I got older, and I'm like, oh shit! Like these are fucking songs, and like songs on songs on songs because you have two great melody makers and also yeah. know, the, the bass is like mm. almost like its own thing in that yeah. band. They, oh those God. those records age well for sure. Yeah,
2: oh yeah, it's incredible. But I remember when it came out I was living in central mass at the time and I had to drive to the mall probably a half hour away or something. I kind of went right. in, in the woods to find a copy of that and I remember. It was just me. I went to the mall, and I got it on cassette, and I, I went in the car, and I put it in, and I listened to it twice in the car before I even went home.
1: <laughs> really? <laughs> like, it, it was park. that important.
2: Yeah. yeah, you had to sit. Like, you can, you know, you, you had to pay attention. But I, I was really excited about it because when we we were filming a video for uh, <sighs> Hell of a Hat on the Question okay. and the Answers record in, yeah, yeah. in New York, and um, mm-hmm. we invited... Um, Tim and Lars were in town. And I don't know how they knew we were there or whatever, but um, maybe we ran into them and invited them. They came by. Um, Lars ended up being in that video, a little cameo thing. But um, they had a portable DAT player with them at the time. Oh, wow. And, like, headphones. And they were, like, they were excited. They are like, check out this new record. Huh. And – I didn't even know there were portable DAT players.
1: Dude, they probably scarfed that from Sony. I remember seeing those guys (laughs) when they were in town – acting like they were going to sign to Sony. And (laughs) I talked to somebody later and they were like, oh yeah, they bailed on Sony, but they made off with a ton of fucking gear.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's probably where it came from. They like raided the Uh Sony
1: like storeroom. That's totally where it came from, dude. I Uh, hope that's
0: not going to cause a problem for those (laughs) fellas. I don't
2: think so. I think the, uh, Um,
1: the statute of limitations is probably passed. Yeah, yeah. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, I think Sony's probably was probably a little more upset about them not signing yeah. the contract. But um, right. I actually have a Sony portable that player up in my attic somewhere. I remember I bought it in Japan one time when we were on tour. Nice. Um, but so I had heard a couple songs, I had heard a couple mixes, and I, I was like, "Wow!" You know, it was really um exciting uh, to hear those tunes. And so I was like highly anticipating. So when it came out, I just couldn't, I couldn't leave that. Solomon Pond Mall parking lot. I listened to that record twice. <laughs> right, right.
1: <laughs> Did they wait, were writing that? that record on the road when we were on tour with them? I remember hearing those guys work on those tunes on uh-huh. the road. It was like it was the Let's Go tour and they were writing everything for for the, uh-huh. for the Wolves and it was it was pretty epic. You could tell they were gonna yeah. make good songs. Man. It's a,
2: it's it's pretty it's a pretty next level moment in terms of our thing, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah that's true. That's true. I guess I I guess it took a while for some artists to sort of unapologetically, you know, write song songs. And it was almost (laughs) Mm -hmm. like the, uh, the effort was to go the other way. Right. Like if you were too melodic, you had to do something weird Mm. to stay like counterculture
2: or something. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Do you think without,
0: without that, like, like, you know, them, not without them specifically, but a bunch of different bands kind of paving it that way, you think that sort of led to, you know, the mid to late nineties for you all, like where you really mm. had just these great, 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 almost like not pop songs, but I mean, mm-hmm. they read like pop songs cause they're so right. catchy. I
2: don't, I don't mind the word pop to be honest with you.
0: Yeah. Good.
2: It's so, certainly yeah. not
0: an insult for me. Yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, it, cer- it certainly was, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a sort of blueprint in some ways of what you could do with just sort of writing sort of straight ahead, simple song songs you know
0: yeah yeah now nah, it's interesting like if you don't mind going way back with me oh,
2: because
0: <laughs> joe yeah. you got to remember like i'm 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 a boston's fan i don't, way I, don't before... I don't really
2: know that i don't know oh, that Oh, like really like, talked about it.
0: like even to set the ground like my my brother was like uh he wasn't a punk but he was like a punk adjacent you know Mm-hmm. And him and his friends towards the end of high school started going to city garden shows in Trenton.
2: Oh, right. Yeah.
0: And they used to go to see you, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and at the time, some other strange bands, like they're really into Three Eleven. Uh-huh. They really into that band live who wasn't right. big yet. That. Cause they were yep. from Eastern PA and, yep. Yep. Uh, you know, they're into those bands, but that was my literally don't know how to party. I think, it could have been my first introduction into like non-metal heavy mm-hmm. music. Mm-hmm. Cool. You know? Um, yeah. And so, so no, I, I was a huge fan. And then uh, also when I was 16, I had started putting on shows and met h What are you 18 now? 20 uh, <laughs> 22, <laughs> 22. And th- so the first, uh, I can almost credit the Mighty Mighty Boston's with my lust for wanting to be a musician in some ways Uh because I was in a band called Dilemma Uh and I had started putting on shows in New Jersey and I started booking H2O. I actually booked their first show in New Jersey at a Mm -hmm. fire hall by my house. Mm. And so it was like the first, like, Toby was like the first person I knew their number and could like ask for a favor. And they were opening for you at the Uh Trocadero in Philly. You're right. And I got on the list. Uh-huh. I got backstage. It was like the first time I got to like watch a show from the backstage and see how it played out. And I uh-huh. even that night slipped Dickie a Dilemma demo.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He I has the, I, now I'm remembering the story.
0: I'm sure he has it in bronze you know, <laughs> on his wall at his house. <laughs> and it didn't go to Roadside Records in 1996. Yeah. But yeah, no. So yes, I am a... A giant fan.
2: That's cool. I always think of you as like a hardcore kid.
0: Yeah, I was. but Boston's were hardcore friendly. Like you were allowed yeah. to be a hardcore kid in like the Boston's. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I never, I never abandoned it fully, you know? Like there was never a time through my punk rock years you wouldn't have me admitting I love Metallica, I love Nirvana, mm-hmm. I love Led Zeppelin. Like mm-hmm. I'm just a fucking rock and roll fan, you
2: know? Yeah, cool. That's um great.
0: But the thing I want to go back on was, you know, when you read about the history of the Boston's, the thing I don't, I can't tell where you went from A to B is, you know, Mm. you're in Gangrene, Mm. Dickie's in Impact Unit, Mm. and somehow when you met, you veer away and essentially like invented a genre from two bands that had nothing to do with that genre. So how the heck did that happen?
2: Mm. well uh, those those time you know the time i was in gangrene was, was some years after dickie was in, in impact you know but basically dickie had his band impact unit i never saw them um okay. I, I i probably met dick toward the end of of that you know he was kind of out of that if anything he was starting up his band the cheapskates by the time i knew him and the cheapskates really were more boss tones kind of it was a ska, hard-drinking right. punk band kind of a thing. And one of the guys from Gangrene was in the band. But um, the thing that that, that you, you, you people don't probably realize is, you know, we were – the Boston's were together before I was in Gangrene. Boston's oh, wow. were together when we were in high school.
0: Right.
2: I was okay. – uh, we, we opened up for Fishbone. We did two shows at this little sandwich shop that Dickie worked at called Jonathan Swift's in Harvard Square. Wow. And we got the gig because Dickie – Work, work there making sandwiches but um <laughs> this was fishbone's first trip to the um east coast i i want to say it was 85 or 86 but um i could be wrong about that um and uh that was an an amazing moment for us sort of seeing fishbone cuz i mean right what we were trying to do like we didn't really have many r- references for what we uh, could do or how you know what you could achieve sure. kind of playing ska music or whatever um but of course seeing fishbone was was a pretty eye-opening experience but um the thing i would i would say about it is boss Tones, we um we practiced in in the basement of our our first drummer josh dulcimer who played on um the devil's and out record and he played on half of more noise joe Saroyce replace josh halfway through the making of the more noise record which probably spread across six months like we were doing it in chunks or something (laughs) um but uh what was i going to say about that uh oh yeah we're practicing in the basement i remember we were playing around like what are we going to be what are we going to do you know um maybe even, I don't even know if we had horn. I don't think, know if we had horns yet, you know, but it was kind of like, we were writing these songs and some of Josh's friends from high school would come down and like, listen to us practice and stuff. And I remember like the very first time, like we ever got any feedback on what we were doing. Um, there was this, uh, these sisters, uh, Jen and Stacey Leonardi were their names, but, um, we were playing songs and, and then like after we were done, they're like, Oh, I really like that one song where like you were like playing that like kind of like mellow ska jam and then just like breaks into that loud punk thing or something. Hmm. You know, and like we were yeah. just we were just throwing shit against the wall. At yeah, that yeah. Point. You know what I mean? But that was the first time that like anyone ever sort of responded positively to the idea of like scotch taping together ska and punk music, you know. Right. So that would have been Probably 84, 85. Do,
0: do Jen like and Stacy Leonardi know the, the impact they had on, on a genre of music?
2: <laughs> I don't think so. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I haven't seen them since. So I, right. I'd say no, they have no well, idea. Well,
0: hopefully they're going off track listeners. <laughs> what do you think, Brad? Yeah. <laughs>
1: of course they probably. <laughs> yeah, of course they the are. Millions. Right.
2: So we were just trying to do shit, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, have fun doing it and and it was fun to have people respond and people seemed to be re- responding to that kind of a hybrid so right it just made us want to write more songs like that i, I guess you know
0: and it seems so ambitious especially now that you know, you, you all were in high school how do you put a horn section together and stuff like that when when you're still in high school
2: yeah that's a good question um so our, our first um our sax player Tim, who you guys know, who's yep. still still in the band and was our first horn player, um, Dicky knew him. He had been in uh, a hardcore band called. Oh, what are they called? I don't know what they were called, um, but he was from the Vineyard, and and he had a, he had a buddy named Tim Bridwell who played trumpet. And so anyway, um, you know those guys knew Dick and. Um, they just sort of were like, yeah, we'll play, you know, it's just, when you start a band, you never really think anything through. It's like, what are we going to do today? Right. Kind of a thing, you know? And so today leads to, Hey, you guys want to do this next time, next week or whatever. So zero, no real ambition, um, you know, to play in a, in a room with people. We had some sense that that was our goal. Um, because all, all of Dickie's friends, were giving us the shows we tended at that time to play a lot of bars you know we were playing 21 plus shows right right and and with really sort of mixed results to be honest with you like those people couldn't really make heads or tails of it and it wasn't until we f- signed to tang records and started playing all ages shows you know one of our first all ages shows we opened up for Slapshot at the channel nice and that was sort of like in that moment, like suddenly like the sort of frantic energy of what we were doing kind of came back at us, you know, like, like it was the kids. It was going to, it was going to be the kids that um, appreciated the Boston's. And so that, that, that sort of changed our, our direction a little bit and we started playing exclusively all ages shows. Nice. Um, that, that was our, that was our thing from then on.
0: And opening for Slapshot in Boston, was that like the pinnacle band to open for at the time? Um,
2: those shows were great. You know yeah. there there were there were always great shows at the channel, um, and uh, you know Slapshot was um, was an exciting band to watch for sure.
0: Because to me, you know, when I was coming, I always saw the the old Boston hardcore scene is pretty rough and yeah. kind of rough and tumble <laughs> crew. Like, is is that a correct uh, assessment?
2: Yeah, I mean it, it's funny, you know, like like people have different sort of. Um, when they think about the Boston hardcore scene, they think of like the context can vary greatly, you know, like
0: yeah, you you talk
2: to the drop, drop kicks about the rat and they're talking about the, you know, the two thousands or 99, Mm -hmm. you know, somewhere in there. I I don't know how long they've been, but they opened up for us on tour in 97. So maybe their first shows were 96 and stuff. We didn't really play the rat that much. The Boston's handful of times we We definitely did. But, um, for us, you know, me and Dick and, and going to shows there, it was more of like an 80s thing, you know? Like, right, right. Um, when I, was, I I roadied for bands when I was in high school, and that was sort of my um, introduction to how shows worked and all that kind of stuff. I I worked for um, the band The Outlets, which had Rick Barton, who was the original Dropkick Murphys guitar player. Oh, um, shit. I roadied for a band called the Del Fuegos that kind of had yeah. a, a little bit of success in Boston. Yeah. Or Coy. and uh yeah, that's right. Orquois, <laughs> who's, he's a, a writer now, and you know he's he he wrote a uh, Tom Petty book not so long ago. Oh, really? I, wow. I think, yeah, I think so. Oh,
1: dude, I gotta look that up.
2: Unless I'm thinking of, yeah, I think it was him. Uh, and I, who else? I, I Treater right. That they were morph. You know the band Morphine. Mark yeah, Sandman. Yeah, and Morphine. For yes. For. So before before Morphine, uh, there was a band called Treater Right and I was you know I was a guitar tech, and I drove the van and that kind of stuff. And I, I just loved being around music. Um, I wasn't really, you know, being in a band wasn't always my focus. It was just sort of like, how can I be around music and, mm. you know, have this be my life at, at that time. And I, I was, I had no plans of going to college or anything like that. Um, so I just wanted to tour. And so the, when I graduated in 86, huh? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me see, uh, this band gangrene asked me to go on tours at roadie. And so that was my, the, uh, the summer, okay. the summer after the day after I graduated high school, I got in the van and went out to LA and, you know, they played oh. with a bunch of great bands and played shows with the adolescents and cool. just a lot of those shows at Fenders ballroom and stuff. And you know, it was, it was a, it was a crazy time to be an 18 year old kid on your first tour.
1: Sure. Yeah.
0: And what was your background like that by the time you were, in the end of high school, you were, you know, already fully committed to, you know, no college and, uh-huh. and doing the music thing. And how did you get so, so steadfast, uh, on that path, like so early?
2: Uh, that's a good question. Um, oh, well, one thing I'd say is, um, my parents, though, they, you know, they, they both went to college. Um, they both, they all also were artists.
0: Oh, okay. Um,
2: photographers. And, you know, I I grew up pretty hippie, you okay. know. Okay. Um, and you and grew up
0: in Boston proper? Cambridge. Okay.
2: Cambridge, Mass. Yeah. They're divorced early. My dad lived water, in Watertown, which wasn't far away. Um, and so I think, you know, certainly from my mom, especially, I, I got a, a lot of encouragement. okay um she uh she was super supportive and and like rented this little garage next to our house in cambridge and and that we could run an extension cord from our house sort of down the block and through this little vent in the roof like because it had no power at all you know and that was our that was sort of our first, our first little little practice space, you know. Cool. And so, um, you know, with a mom like that, I guess how can you go wrong? <laughs> right. She was. It was just, you know, I grew up. It was. It was all very progressive, um, private, sort of really small, hundred, hundred kids in K, a K through eight school. We all sat on the floor and and played with puppets. Okay. You know? that was like our english class
0: (laughs) you were like this is like pretty old school for that kind of stuff too that's that's cool
2: yeah it was super 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 sort of um leaning forward certainly cambridge as far as that kind of open classroom progressive education um whole child kind of whatever right right. whatever the theories are i don't really know to be honest with you but i'm um,
0: on them now i'm doing full-on hippie parenting at this point
2: uh yeah good
0: was your mom a proper 60s hippie
2: um yeah I, I guess so um interesting I mean she had a you know interesting life my um her parents were um screenwriters in in Los Angeles oh, wow. um but also communists so okay. uh m- uh during the whole um blacklisting McCarthy yeah, era McCarthy stuff thing, yeah. yeah, McCarthy thing so yeah. they 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 split and went to Mexico Whoa. Whoa. And so my mom, my mom and her, um, brothers and sisters, um, grew up in Mexico for a good chunk of their, their lives. And so she would have gone to college from, from there. Um, but so, yeah, there's, there's always been that sort of creative artistic thing running through the family. Um, and so I, I felt supported in doing that, you know, at that time. And it, I guess it worked out pretty good.
0: That's awesome. It's almost in your blood. Yeah. It's in your blood to be a counterculture revolutionary mm. type. Yeah. yeah Do you feel like you've, you've filled those shoes? I think you did well. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think so. I, I hope so. Thank you.
0: Yeah, no problem. Uh, but that, um,
2: you, you mentioned
0: morphine. Uh, is that how you, how you hooked up with Paul Caldery so early mm. on?
2: He, no, we knew him before. Um, so Paul produced our very first record, Devil's Night Out, right? Um, and we recorded that whole record in 24 hours, whoa, m- mixed and everything. Cool, yeah, crazy, huh? Uh, like, intense. how could you do that now?
0: Uh, yeah, well,
2: you'd have I, to, you'd yeah. have to, like, you'd have to Like, force yourself you know yeah. but at that point, it yeah. was all driven by just the budget you know
0: right exactly
2: so paul was just the the one of the engineers at one of the studios in boston however we ended up getting connected with him and he ended up doing our next record too um and then we started working with him and his partner sean slade um they're a production duo that did a lot of kind of cool um, those
1: guys were monsters like in the 90s whole yeah. they did the whole
2: live through this record and they did you know a bunch of sort of significant um records of the time paul worked on pixie's recordings and that kind of stuff you know um and we're still friends to this day i mean as recently as um paul produced my avoid one thing record that i put out whatever it was a few years ago oh really yeah cool. so he um he's still in the area and and doing good work um Doing it from home though,
0: right? You know, right. Like right, a lot right. of
2: people, he's got like a little Neve sidecar at home, and he can do killer mixes from from his living room or wherever it is.
0: Wow, oh, I'm so. I'm still on this. I'm hooked on this 24 hour recording session. That is, yeah. I mean, it is so. You know, I just got out of the studio from something, and one of the conversations I had with the engineer was, I, I was shocked to find out that literally, uh, bands, most bands, just record. Part to part now,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know they'll literally like do a verse and stop and do a chorus and stop wow. and like Jesus, you know, and I was feeling a little uh you know um self conscious because there was a few songs I'm like i don't know every beat i'm gonna play to these songs yet like i'm not sure, mm-hmm. yeah. and then I got there, and I kind of realized like I guess this day and age you can you can kind of let it go a little uh-huh. it's scary, but yeah. i I think there's a there's going to be, or I think there already is kind of this like pushback happening. Mm-hmm. And I think you're seeing a lot of young people really finding the value in like live recording and open mm-hmm. recording.
1: It seems like it's making a comeback. I hope.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah. Hey
1: Joe, since you brought up that first album and since yeah. you're talking about live recording, Benny, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, maybe my favorite, favorite Boston song of all time is on that record, which is a little bit ugly which sounds very live, <laughs> <laughs> but like, how did that song come about?
2: Oh my God. Well, that song is actually like, there's a splice in there on the two track on a, on the half inch or quarter inch or oh, whatever nice. it was. Can you hear you, it? Hey, oh dude, where it goes from slow to fast. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, listen like to the snare day. drum, like change pitch. Like, <laughs> um, but yeah. So, so for whatever reason, like we had started to record, there was an earlier version of that. Um, little bit ugly song and then um, we wanted to like spruce it up some and and um, Murphy's Law was in town the day that we were going to finalize the record they were playing at the channel and a matinee and I knew those guys because I had been uh, in gangrene right. you know we played shows together and stuff and <laughs> D- Dickie knew them too for a- a- another set of reasons just having to do with like the kind of early early days of you know, the 80s, early days of Boston, New York, hardcore, like, violence and
0: stuff. Right. You know? Oh, right. Yeah.
2: Like, the New York guys would come up to Boston and just fuck shit up, you know? Right. Um, but so they knew each other, too. Um, but uh, we went to the show, brought them down, and, you know, just with this idea of, like, wouldn't it be cool if we could get Jimmy and Dickie to sing this song together? Um, and so the, the slow part of the song was was recorded with Jimmy that day and the fast part was recorded some other time. I don't know. And yeah, I mean, that was the thing is like, we didn't have the money in our minds. Like we thought we were just like, we're trying to be, you know, just trying to be frugal. Like we can't afford, we can't, we can't afford to record the whole song. (laughs) Let's just record half. the song, And then, you know, you're working on, you're doing edits just with, with with tape and a, and a reel of, quarter inch or whatever it was and like trying to get it right and i remember when we put it the whole thing together me and dick were listening to like neither of us really were completely satisfied i think i think i think we might have we might have scrounged up another 50 dollars worth of studio time (laughs) and gone and tried to like put some elements over that pasted across both sides of it or something like that um so anyway yeah uh, but yeah, a little bit ugly is cool. Um, it's always great when Jimmy jumps up there, and that we've done that not so long ago. Actually, when we played, uh, we played that benefit thing for Jimmy in in the park. Yeah, two, oh right, yeah. I was actually ago. there.
1: I was in the audience uh, with all those other oldies.
2: <laughs> That's funny. That was a, that was such a fun show. Uh, I was. It was really embarrassing. We bumped into our booking agent there, who knew nothing about the show. Oh,
0: yes. <laughs> good for you. He saw he saw the
2: sign. And he found his way into our dressing room, our buddy Duffy McSwiggin. He's a great agent. What did he say? He's cool, you know. It's like there (laughs) there was really nothing. He was sort of like, well, you should have let me know. I could have helped you with this or that. You know, just as agents would do, they want to be part of the Part of the action, if you're putting yeah, they, yeah, they want
0: their percentage.
2: <laughs> but there was, but there was, you know, this was a a, a bit of a different thing. Oh, and
0: that's we, why he was being cool because it was a benefit, and he wasn't getting the exactly percentage. It, we
2: weren't, we weren't getting paid. We didn't get paid. Right.
1: The, the dressing room must have been in Niagara. Yeah, of course. Of course. Like was. book, book
0: all the benefits you want without me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: That's funny, man. Yeah. Well, I what was, uh you know, someone like Dickie is sort of a mythological figure to me. Is he one of those people that when you first met the first couple times, could you tell it was just well, little something extra about the guy, oh like God. extra charisma? Or-
2: yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, he's, he's a few years older. So those few years, it, it means nothing now, but when one person is 21 and one's 18 no, it's or huge, something like yeah. that, it's huge. The first time I met him, there was a show, there was this place called the club in central square, And, um, I can't remember who was playing. Um, but anyway, there was a little parking lot there and I was skateboarding in the parking lot and this car like screeched up onto the curb and (laughs) into the thing. And Dickie was driving at the time. I, 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 I've known him to, I I knew him to finally get his license probably five years later. So I don't know why (laughs) he was driving. Okay. (laughs) But there were some other like real skaters in the car and, you know, Dick was, it, it was all at that point they were kind of. Um, leaving the hardcore thing behind and starting these ska bands. And, you know, um, it was a little bit more about sort of having fun, you know, as opposed to like getting your head smashed in.
0: Um, right, right.
2: At a hardcore show. And um, I almost got hit by him. And he jumped out of the car and then he jumped on my skateboard and tried to (laughs) skate a little bit. And then you could see that he had, you know, he probably had a few, few beers in him or something at that time, you know, but I knew who he was, you know, um, our guitar, I was my, our guitar player, Nate, his older brother, Martin was kind of friends with those guys. And there were some other parties I went to in high school where he was kind of around with his friends and stuff. So, um, it's amazing to me, actually come to think of it the reason i i kind of knew him more was the other band i roadied for the first band i really roadied for was this band called chain link fence and and um, dick's brother billy was the singer of that band and so through roading for for that band like me and Dickie ended up hanging around a little bit together and i don't know what or why when you know me and nate kind of Mustered up the courage like hey we're starting we're talking about starting a band you know but by this point he had been in a couple bands you know
0: and they were kind of like notable local yeah bands too,
2: yeah. yeah you know maybe more so now than at the time though. oh so now, okay you know like maybe it's a little more like you know because dickie went on to do what he did ah, people, right, people right, are a little right, more right, interested right. in but at that sure. time it, it really you know there wasn't music out or anything like that you know it was, it was just they were having fun hanging out um so anyway um We expressed an interest in, and he he said, yeah, you know, why don't you, you know, maybe we'll do that. Um, He moved to Albany shortly after for a little bit. But when he came back, we connected and I I got a job. He got me a job at this place, the um, Brown Derby Deli, downtown Boston was um, a place he had been working. And I I don't know, it was like a hot dog place. (laughs) And uh, we started hanging out, you know, and and he taught us a lot, you know, like he knew way more than us about songwriting at that time sure and just being a band and getting shows and making flyers you know he made all our flyers Mm -hmm. and me and him would we had our this route he lived in uh on fair street in, in boston these lofts that i ended up eventually living in too but um i lived in cambridge and we'd meet somewhere along the way with a Big. I'd get a big thing of Elmer's glue, and he'd get Xeroxes made, and we would glue these flyers to anything, you know, stationary or not. It, 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 cabs too. You know, we'd put them on the like the the signs above above the cabs and stuff. Um, but mailboxes and and posts and the and these flyers we were up for years
0: yeah you used elmer's glue that's <laughs> Elmer's glue. <laughs> <laughs> and
2: because what you do is you do all around the outside and then you do a big x through the middle right and then maybe sure. maybe a couple extra dots in the, yeah, in the little things not in going anywhere triangles. that's not, not a stable anywhere. job yeah jeez <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean and, and we were promoting for shows that were two days away i don't know what we thought <laughs> right, right. how permanent we needed these things to be you know um but but yeah you know um dick's cool he's funny <laughs> as hell and he's cool and he's smart and he writes great lyrics and um you know we're we're uh, we're dear friends to this day
0: and it's just been like that from there Did you, you know, you you mentioned it a couple of times, uh, you know, the New York people coming up and the violence of the late 80s, early 90s up there. Did you ever have any
2: epic brawls? Um, I didn't. I mean, I missed that. You know, 82, I was, I was the first show, first big show I saw was, was, um, I saw uh, the English Beat. Nice. Yeah. So this was 81, I think. English beat REM was open was the opener. Whoa, really? Yeah. yeah. And then, but you know, from there you get into it more. I, I saw Minor <laughs> Threat early on, VFW Hall, saw some really good shows and stuff like that. But I was, I was, I was, tim- I was a little timid and and uh, maybe a little young for some of it. I was, a, I was a little bit more of a back of the room kind of guy. Yeah, know? yeah. Um, and so I was, it it was, it seemed, it seemed dangerous to me. And and that's probably partly why I loved it so much.
0: Yeah. So you liked being around that though.
2: Yeah. But I was, I was by no means was I in the mix on that kind of
1: thing. (laughs) Yeah. I was, so we have this segment called mystery friend where we try to get kind of like dirt on, uh, you know, from one of your old timers Mm -hmm. and I failed to get a mystery friend for you. Um, I hope that, uh, I was trying to get Chris Doherty. I think is he is hmm. is he okay? Heard he might not.
2: Yeah, I hope he's. I hear he's doing better. Okay. He had he had a stroke some years ago.
1: Oh, okay, but um, um, but I did get hold of John Darga, who didn't have any dirt on you, but he said, um, he goes, I was never in a brawl in Boston that Dickie didn't start,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: like at a show.
2: <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's if that's true. I mean, he certainly, yeah, certainly not a violent guy. I mean, he was like, you know, he was on stage a lot. Right. Right. There's a story about Lux and Terrier punching Dickie or something. I don't know if that really happened. I think it maybe it didn't. But, you know, he was always sort of part of the show and a lot of stage dives and that kind of thing. But by no means was he ever a guy who was looking for that kind of trouble, you know, he's in the mix. Yeah. Maybe he was
1: involved in all of them. Maybe he didn't say he started them. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think he started them, but uh, he might have been
0: I, I appreciate yeah. that. I could say the same thing for myself.
2: There's mm-hmm. a good like
0: dozen conflicts that I was involved in <laughs> at shows that I never threw a punch and never got punched. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. for sure. So Joe, you and I are part of an exclusive club together. Oh my god. Do you know that? <laughs> no, I have no idea. Tell We're me. in the Gap Tooth Club. And it's a big deal in my family. So Uh my father had Gap Teeth. Uh I have Gap Teeth. He told me the whole time growing up, it's a sign of genius. Uh Don't worry about it. And now one of my nieces has a gap and she's wearing it real proud. <laughs> so this is three generations now. That's great. My kids are just losing their teeth. So I don't know. Uh-huh. I don't know. We'll see. I don't know what's coming in yet. Like if, I, they, if I,
2: they come in straight, get braces that give them the gap.
0: I will. I'm like, I don't, I don't want these kids with normal teeth. Their father's got this giant gap and a cry. I look like a fucking jack-o'-lantern. You know? <laughs>
2: but if you, if you can't fit a quarter in there, you gotta going to have to get the kids' braces.
0: Oh, dude, I can do a quarter and a nickel.
2: What's, what's your size? Can you get a nickel? I, can't, oh, I, I can get I can. a nickel, yeah. <laughs> I got a
0: serious gap.
2: <laughs> I can get a nickel, but it's not coming out.
0: <laughs> do you have the issue, before I get into this thing, do you ever have the issue? I'm just
2: so excited to know there is a club, first of all, and could you send me some literature?
0: Gap-tooth rockers. <laughs> I'm going to go a step further, Joe. I have a ranking okay coming up in about a second but do you ever get like a chip or like some hard bread kind (laughs) of irritates the the little the little gummy part in between the gap
2: Uh, um i don't know i don't i I feel like the gap's so big that things just fall out of there You
0: know, well, it's, it's like I make my kids floss every night and I literally have never flossed in my life. You
2: know what? Yeah. It's funny when I go to the dentist and they and they get to that part, you know, like, the first of all, the flossing of the dentist is a bit of a just a show. Like,
1: yeah,
2: we're doing this so that you think it's something that you, yeah, right. so that you need to do, too. But whenever they get to that the gap and they have this little piece of floss. Like I always have yeah. to kind of laugh. What's
0: that thing going to do?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so who else we got? We so, got listen. David Letterman.
0: No. Okay. I can't, I went a step further. Cause so okay. I started looking into like celebrity gap toothers and there's quite uh. a few, like it's a pretty long list. So uh. I went into musical gap tooth club. Oh, my God. And I I think you're maybe, like, getting to, like, sixth, seventh all time (laughs) in music history. So the only people I could find, Madonna, of course. Oh, okay. Extremely famous Gap. Elton John. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Then we're going Seal. Oh, yeah, Seal. Amy Winehouse.
2: Ah, yeah. But then after
0: four... I'm starting to get a little like murky, you know. We're going into Leanne Rhymes.
2: Uh-huh. We're going
0: into Flea, but I'm not even sure he has Flea. a gap. He might just yeah, be missing does. one.
2: Oh, no, okay. he's got a gap. Oh, he does have I think so.
0: Okay. Yeah, I think so. You know this person. You know him personally.
2: Well, no, I'm just in- I'm envisioning yeah. as you mentioned them. I'm like, oh yeah, they do. You know, so, I
0: yeah. So as I go through this, what do we got? Madonna one, uh-huh. Elton John two, Winehouse, Seal, Flea. That's five. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I personally would put you over Leanne Rimes uh, okay. in my own well, thank, musical history. Thank you. So, so I really think I'd like to hear, I mean, people come back at me, but I got you somewhere sixth to eighth all time <laughs> in musical Gap Tooth Club. <laughs> How does it make you feel? Uh,
2: uh, proud. Yeah. <laughs> I'm for sure. I mean, for starters. Quite proud, yeah. <laughs> Good. But but I, I will point out that there's a whole world of musicians that we don't know about, you know, that we're going to have to... Oh, if, if, yeah. we're gonna, if we're going to take this, you know... like If Guinness is going to be involved in any of this stuff, we're going to need to really tighten up the science. Sure. Bit,
0: you know? I'd love some feedback, because I'm <laughs> sure there's a, a contemporary element of this I'm missing. Mm-hmm. That's got to be a fact. But there's some beautiful people, too. I, you know, I try to tell my niece i'm like listen like this is not a weird thing this is unique and beautiful i'm like you got bridget Bardot, Mm. you know uh (laughs) condoleezza rice ron howard woody harrelson anna paquin elijah wood michael Uh strahan the list goes on and on (laughs) (laughs) it's it's really great so good for us did you ever have the instinct at any point to fix it
2: um, I, I was told by my dentist to tell my parents I need braces. That message never made its way home.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I remember I had the option because like my teeth were evenly spaced. So like you're not in any trouble, but you could cosmetically get braces. And already uh-huh. I was like, nah, fuck that. Yeah, right. And then when I got older, the solution was like actually making your two teeth bigger. So they connect oh. <laughs> like, the two biggest fucking front teeth
1: that ever exist. Wait, they actually like add something to your teeth to make them. Yeah, bigger? I
0: think for some people, they'll put like oh a little extra like fake enamel or like something over that. that sounds you know? like
1: a problem.
0: That's bullshit. <laughs> you know, of all the things, you know, yeah. don't get me started on. A How do they, they drink
1: through a straw with, by, with their mouth shut?
0: <laughs> mm, well, how do you drink through a straw <laughs> with your mouth shut? You <laughs> don't have one? I can't. Yeah. Huh. Well, it's the greatest <laughs> thing and also now that I have kids, the the uh thing I can do with spitting and becoming mm-hmm. a fountain. Yep. Um it's it's very impressive now. Yeah. You know, that's starting to go to good use. There are benefits. Yeah. Well, high five, Joe. <laughs> yes.
1: Hey, before we stray too far from history, Can you talk about Thayer Street? (laughs) Because I was talking to somebody, maybe on this show, and I tried to, like... Thayer Street was, like, kind of a big deal. Like, I remember it to be, like...
2: It was all bands, right? It was all bands, yeah. So it was this uh, these loft buildings in the south end of Boston. Um, At that time, it was mostly um, commercial spaces, but more and more sort of artsy-fartsy people were getting a hold of these spaces. And they were only heated on the weekdays from 9 to 5, so they were really cold. I actually lived in my room – I actually took over my room in the loft from – our, our keyboard player John Getchis lived in this in the room before me, and it was it was a, the best room in the loft in that it was um, it was an elevator shaft, but with a wooden floor like put in, so the elevator was no longer functional. But huh. that meant two big doors that closed, and you could have a little space heater in there in the winter, and it would get like toasty warm. Right. That's awesome. um, the other rooms, and I use that term lightly, were usually made out of more like. Um, canvas stretched on, right. you know, wooden frames, or like sh- oh, you know, right. sheetrock, or, or you might see a carpet hanging okay. from the ceiling okay. or something like that as one of the walls right. for the, the people there. Wow. Um, but so was it like shared
0: bathroom that kind of stuff? Yeah,
2: there was yeah. a bathroom there. um and, uh, the dogmatics was, so this, the loft dogmatics, where I Dogmatics,
1: right. I think I, yeah, so I was, think I was at the dogmatics loft. Did they have like yeah, so mattresses on the floor and walls? Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah. On the, on the walls that was because yeah. the practice space yeah, needed yeah. extra soundproof. I don't know who we were trying not to disturb because believe me, we disturbed everybody. But, um, so that it was, it would have been referred to as the dogmatics loft. I lived there with, um, the singer of the dogmatics, Jerry LaHane, and, right these guys from this band called Last Stand actually you mentioned um City Gardens the first time I went to City Gardens I was filling in playing bass in this band Last Stand it was the only show I played with them but they were opening up at City Gardens for um 10,000 maniacs
0: wow nice
2: and uh we drove all the way down there and there were there were only about 20 maniacs there actually but um <laughs> it was a fun show nonetheless <laughs>
0: That was there was only twenty people at a ten thousand Maniac show
2: <laughs> at that time. Yeah, yeah, wow, absolutely. People
0: forget that about City Gardens. Like it's it became widely known as just like a punk and hardcore place, but
2: there was know, a lot of stuff.
0: Yeah, was. yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, there were shows there four or five nights a week and really varied. They were they were pretty heavy and alternative too.
2: Do you know that guy Toby Record? Mm, no, oh, I, I don't know how you would know him, but I, I just know him from somebody I I talked to City Gardens about who I met up here and he teaches, a, he's taught a couple of classes in our program, but um, he's like a, a publishing dude who's in some punk and hardcore bands. But anyway. A shout out um, to
0: Gentle Jim, Gentleman Jim Norton, who is a listener of the show, who yeah, was Jim. a, uh, like, the dude at City Gardens. So, uh-huh. what's up, Jim? Yeah.
2: And and, and Randy, right? Wasn't Yeah. Guy?
0: Randy was the promoter, yeah.
2: And um, John Stewart.
0: Right. Bartender, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: <laughs> Yeah. It was quite a crew.
0: So, Joe... Yeah. I had to ask. Yes, please. Ben. Mm. Great addition. Well, I mean, he's just always been there. He's he's Mm -hmm. maybe the Boston, right? I wondered, you've seen him dance probably, what, thousands of times at this Mm. point. Yes. I'm wondering, over the years, has his moves progressed? Does he bust out some moves you've never (laughs) seen and keep it fresh? How much do you see with Ben? How much? How much has he mixed it up over the years?
2: Um, I don't really know. I don't. I, don't <laughs> I mean, he has. He has his thing, and his thing is is so purely his own. You know. Yes, uh,
0: that's a fact.
2: I don't think it, it's changed all, all that much, but um, I'll say that I I still really enjoy it.
0: <laughs> so you never look over and be like, "Ooh, Ben, where'd you get that one from?" I, I can tell you, it's progressed
2: from the first night he did that, which was. At a club called, uh, it was our first show, and it was at a club called uh, The Down Under in Boston. We were opening for this band called Scruffy the Cat. And uh, <laughs> and um, Ben, we were underage. Me and Nate and Ben were underage. Dickie was old enough at that point. But the the rule at the time was that in order for you to be in a bar, in, in you know, over oh. 21 plus show, you had to be in the band. It wasn't enough to be with the band. Right. And, and so when they were kind of like giving stamps and checking IDs early in the night, Dickie just leaned over to Ben and said, say, say, say you're in the band. <laughs> and then when it came time, it was sort of still this overwhelming fear about Ben getting thrown out of the show. <laughs> right. And so Dick said, just get up there and do no, something, shit. <laughs> <laughs> hoot and holler or whatever. And he did, you know, he, he shouted background vocals and It wasn't as, you know, it wasn't as um, much of a display as it is now. You know, it's, it's changed a lot. I mean, he was, uh, he was, he was up there on short notice. So you're saying
1: that Ben has been in the band all these years just so he can get into the shows for free?
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not for free, just so he could get in at all. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Is, is the way that worked. And, you know, I don't have to tell you guys, um, you know, when you, uh, I'm trying to put this in a way that Brad will understand, like. (laughs) When you say to yourself early on, like, ah, we'll just put on clown makeup and call ourselves <laughs> clown for progress, clowns for <laughs> progress, you don't really like think that through, you know? Like, well, are we still going to be happy doing this with this <gasps> fucking grease on our face five years later or whatever? You know, it's it's never like there's no like thoughtful sort of deliberation about this, you know? Right. Well, is it, you know, it's just like you know. You don't think about any of that shit. Yeah, you just, rolled right into it. Yeah, you just do. It's what
1: fantastic. Is, Who knows? It may have you know. It's it's your thing. You know, maybe. Yeah. yeah.
2: Oh my! Absolutely. I I mean, I I think that it, it's one of the hallmarks of the Boston's, and probably one of the things that people will ask about first, or mention first, or or that kind of thing. Yeah. And,
0: you when know, you all were like proper proper tour like pre-bus, you know, like van touring and stuff like that. Did you ever have to be like, "Listen, Ben, like you're fucking you like did he have to load, unload, pack, drive, like did he have to like do that stuff cuz he wasn't ben playing anything?"
2: Yeah. Through through the the sort of height of our touring. Yeah. So like in the mid to late 90s, Ben was our tour manager too.
0: Oh, right. perfect. Okay.
2: And so, you know, we were putting in extra time in the studio and on the writing and stuff like that, but he had extra responsibilities out there on the road, you know? Awesome. Yeah. So it always, it always, you know, felt like we were a, a good unit. Everyone yeah. was working hard. And certainly what he does has got to be fucking hard.
1: You yeah. Know? I think, yeah. Yeah. I think so. Because it's br- just that. He's burning more calories than anybody except maybe Joe. You never see anything but
0: overwhelming positivity, you know, that's, Mm -hmm. that's the thing that would be hard. Like as a drummer, I've always appreciated the fact, like the nights I'm in a shitty mood, I'm going to let my hair down, I'm going to put my head down and I'm going to do my job just fine. But I don't have to like some nights I don't have to Mm -hmm. perform because I'm a fucking drummer, you know? Yeah. And so that's a lot of pressure, like to to look good and perform Mm -hmm. and excite a crowd every night. It's hard. Mm
2: -hmm. Absolutely. And, and, and I mean, I, I think it's the same being a singer too, is hard yes. too. It's like, it's hard to, to find that night off, you know, or when you're, when you're fronting a band or something like that, I think it's especially difficult too.
0: Yeah. I had to learn that over the years. Cause I was always like the ass I would get on any singer I had about a bad show or about like mm-hmm. a negative feeling up there or like not giving it your all. Yeah. And I think it was Brian the first time who was like, listen, like, I can't hide it, you know? Like I gotta talk to people. I gotta sing. I gotta like uh-huh. be up there. Like you don't you don't have to I'm like oh, yeah
2: that's true. <laughs> yeah <laughs> sorry. It it is a, <laughs> a different dynamic.
1: Yeah, you know it is. speaking of those day, those early touring days, I thought like I thought you guys had the best fucking racket that like well you guys had the East Coast, like the Northeast college circuit like nailed down before mm. you even did, before you even had a hit on the radio. and Yeah, it, like yeah, we did. You never had to, like, true. you didn't even really have to sleep in a hotel, it seemed like. You guys could take off for weekends and play, like, massive shows mm-hmm. and then be home in two days, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, How did the, the, you do North- that? the Northeast had a lot of those college opportunities. How did you guys
1: get that, though? Because those gigs are hard to get
2: when we um when we uh in 1991 or 92 around the time of our first record we did this we we were in a tv commercial for converse sneakers um it it was for chuck taylor specifically Um, so for us it was great it's like yeah chucks you know and so There was a TV ad that um, that sort of allowed us to sort of gain a little bit of attention at that time, and some of the attention that came came from this booking agency in the New England area called Pretty Polly. And Pretty Polly, they were like the middle agent for all college shows happening Mm. in all all of New England or something like that. So we we plugged ourselves in on that pretty early on, and and realized that you know there was you know there sort of different types of opportunities that we could look for or take part in and the college shows could be fun sometimes they were less fun but the thing that they could do is that they you know some of those a single college show could foot the bill for an entire club tour yeah essentially right, you know right.
1: i was just like like how many money times was so did before like let's face it did you even go cross country did you got guys- a bunch you did okay.
2: many 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 many
1: okay.
2: uh, you know probably 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 four or five in a van and you know probably three or four in a bus before or more i might might be way under under selling right you know but we were we were out there a lot
1: i just remember thinking these guys have such a fucking sweet gig why would you ever head head across utah when you could just stay here
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah but you almost had a reputation those days for being proper road dogs
2: right yeah i i guess so we um there were years we did three hundred shows. Wow! Our 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 um our front of house guy, I remember, had a list or something at the end of a uh, of a year, and we had done three hundred shows in a year. And there were years that we did two hundred or more. and That was just kind of the way we were going about it, you know.
0: It, it makes me wonder because you know, uh, one thing I think it's maybe hard for someone to understand who doesn't tour is how difficult it can be to look a certain way especially if you're like van touring.
2: Which is why after uh, after a particularly sweaty show and you're touring in a van, Uh so there were were eight in the band and we had a crew of four at that time. So 12 of us in a 15-passenger van with a trailer. After a particularly sweaty show, it was best to keep your suit on Especially if it was an overnight drive because oh. there would be nowhere for that clothing to dry right you know, where it would be look semi presentable for the next show so there was a lot of that huh like like where we would try and like keep our clothes on just to try and preserve <laughs> our because otherwise they' like get balled up and shoved in a you know in a in a um, a bag or whatever yeah yeah know?
0: yeah I was always the at like I had one hanger for my mm-hmm. dirt wet clothes and someone had to like sleep right under them, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> but so, I mean, you, you know, if you were getting picked up with Converse in the early nineties, I'm sure you were already implementing your style at that point. And, you know, I was almost going to ask as a joke, like, where do you get 11 matching blazers for like photo shoots and stuff? But, um, you know, when, when did the style aspect of the Boston's really kick up? Cause it's such a big part of your, your aesthetic. From the
2: very beginning. From show number one. Wow. And Ben was dressed too, because we, we wanted them dressed as our roadie. He dressed ah. you know, he was he he had a suit on that night too. So but, suits.
0: Suits show one. Suits. Suits yeah. show one. Fuck yeah.
2: Um I, I remember some early shows where we were wearing suits and Dickie was wearing a plaid bathrobe. You know, there was a little <laughs> bit of that. <laughs> nice. He he um he he got a piece of plaid fabric and and cut out of felt boss tones. Um, but it was before the mighty mighty it was just we were the boss tones and yeah. made made a backdrop and and stuff like that and um it, it was all dick really you know yeah. I, I think probably his love of madness and you know all of all of us loved the specials and all that kind of stuff so like we understood th- that aesthetic and sort of what it represented i guess to right. us you know or what we thought it represented
0: and know? how did you punk and hardcore kids acquire
2: acquire these suits um there was a place in central square that called Keysers that, that had a lot of good used stuff. You know, you could go in there and you could, you could dig, dig through the bins and find stuff. I mean, literally like, like enormous boxes and all it is, is thousands of plaid bow ties. I, and I don't know, don't know wow. like how they got this shit or why, <laughs> but like we would go to those kinds of places to the, the thrift and to thrift stores too, you know, just yeah. digging through goodwill and, and that kind of thing, you know. Um, and uh, there have been times it's been more matchy. There have been times it's been more just kind of plaid nonsense. Um, yeah. Nowadays, um, actually, Ben's wife Laura is involved in getting some of that stuff for us oh, really? now. She okay. kind of helps out with that stuff, and we, have, you know, there are a couple different companies that hook us mm-hmm. up with some deals now and again, and we try and, um, you know, try and mix it up. That's um, but, awesome but that but all any anything that you see about the Bostons, whether it's album art or um t shirts or um how we dress or what the stage looks like, primarily that's all dick you know hmm. um some of that that throw down stage the elaborate stage stuff we we work on together depending on where the ideas are coming right. from but 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 really, like he's a really he's a really talented artist you know he hmm. can he's he he draws. Um, you know, he's he used to do cartoons that would get published in in oh, Boston cool. Rock, Boston wow. Rock, which was like, you know, the sort of the Village Voice ish oh, type Boston music rag and stuff. I gotta stuff find like that. some of
0: those. That's cool.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you search, you'll if you see the early flyers, it's usually this character that has horns and a flat top. It's sort of like it's pictures of Dicky, really. <laughs> right, um, right. But that was those are his those are his drawings and wow. those are his his ideas. So
0: he really had the like aesthetic for it in his head, you know, right from the get.
2: Everything we do is, um, on the, on the visual side, he's really, he thinks about it a lot and he has a lot of interest in art and stuff. So, it's awesome. Um, I just stand back and, (laughs) and can't wait to see what the things are going to look like in most instances, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So when I started doing the research for this interview, uh, you know, the first image that shows up for you now is that very nice image from the Northern Vermont website. Hmm. And uh, I took a look at your class schedule and the classes you (laughs) offer. Um, (laughs) And one stood out to me that you teach a class called contemporary issues in music management, Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, is, uh, it's a nice way to put it. And, and often on this show, we kind of covered that exact topic because, you know, we're old people trying to get our heads around TikTok and things like that. Yeah. So, um, you know, in teaching this class, you know, maybe not specific to management. What, what do you think are the biggest, uh, hurdles or advantages that, that people, um, getting into promoting music now, as opposed to the eighties and nineties have mm-hmm. to
2: face. um, the volume of music that's available, I guess, mm. is probably the biggest thing. Right. You know, like, how do you rise above that sort of, the noise of all that, you know, yeah. or whatever. Um, you know, we for us, it was sort of like, is there a label that'll think we're cool enough to give us their stamp of approval and, you know, maybe fund us to go in the studio. And, and nowadays, it's like, my students are making great sounding recordings for free right? Um, on their laptops and all that kind of stuff. And there's just more, I, I think that that's the challenge is just that there's so much more music readily available, you know, but I will say that I, I actually, although I, I invented the name of that class, I haven't had to teach it yet. Oh, okay. Um, because because I, 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 I had been department chair for a while and I was able to hire friends and, and associates to come in as adjuncts. And um, people have had some interesting ideas about that. Sometimes it's, it can be sort of more touring specific or oh, okay. market, marketing specific or it depends. The The angle's different each time and the idea is that students can uh, take it more than once with uh, a change of title and, sure. and get credit.
0: Well, let's, so. let's hammer out the curriculum right now, you know? <laughs> let's
2: do it. Dude, if you guys think that I, you're not going to be repaying this little favor uh, on Zoom come fall, you're crazy. <laughs> I'm going to get you both in there. You'll see.
0: So, I mean, that being said, I mean, even, you know, beyond school, just as an artist who's, you know, still existing and putting out music, what are your methods of trying to, to rise above that noise? Or is, since it's the Boston, are you kind of like, um, you know, grandfathered in, I guess, to like mm. the old ways? Like, do you have to do the things that a young band has to do?
2: Um, I I don't think so. Yeah. I I don't know. Or maybe we should be, and we don't. I mean, we you know we have a, we have an Instagram, and we have a Facebook, and um, we have a Twitter that has not been open for several months. <laughs> okay. And um, I don't I don't I don't enjoy that stuff at all personally. Yeah, right. Even though I I was the you know back in the day I was the one who started that Facebook, and there was a time when I was kind of like a little more enamored with that sort of connecting with fans the time it was most exciting was when we were getting back together in in 2007 after mm. we had not played for three or four years and sure sure you know um around the time you know myspace was still around and facebook was just starting and like to be out of touch with fans for those years and then then suddenly back in touch and to, to feel like the excitement you right. know of that first show back or whatever yeah. like that's when i loved social media you mm-hmm. know like when um you know when we'd do a special pre-sale thing and it's going to be announced at this time in this forum and, and people would gather and like there was like felt like this a live sort of event taking place at a certain period of time you know yeah um, you know Boston's we've always certainly recognize the fact that anything that we're able to do musically at this point or at any point really along the way is by the kind of generosity of our fans, you know? And so, um, in the early days we started a, f- a fanzine called the Seven Thirty Seven, and we just made this thing. Dickie did a lot of it, cut and paste and wrote articles and, 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 or, or would, um, have little like things, question question and answer things from fans and, um, that was our P.O. Box 737 in Central Square, Massachusetts. Um, that's where that name came from. And that 737 number is still sort of significant to um, the hardcore Boston fans now, you know?
0: See, I was TikTok at the time.
2: I guess so. That was our version of <laughs> that's it. That
0: your version of TikTok. But I
2: mean literally, you know, we're buying stamps and yeah, you know, we're, yeah. we're we're licking the envelopes and, and come back from tour and Dickie would go down to the mailbox and see what kind of mail is there and we'd we'd answer letters that people send or we'd send if they'd request things, we'd send them a sticker and all that kind right, of stuff. Right, right. And so, you know, that's always been like like we've been we've been um encouraged by those kinds of like connections with our fans and so in that regard social media obviously offers that but it offers so much awfulness now that <laughs> right it's just oh. it, it, it it it's not something that i i look forward to doing opening i dread it
0: frankly, yeah right you well know? I, I mean that's the difficult part about it is navigating it in a way that's um tasteful for a grown adult yeah you know i i wonder because someone recently told me they're like you should have a tiktok and if no. you have one <laughs> you need to make sure you post every day
2: oh yeah to make sure your like you know
0: your feed is feeding and the analytics yeah. and the stats yeah. are moving the way you need and i literally just asked this prayer i'm like what the fuck am i supposed to do or say like every uh-huh. day to people like in yeah. a video format like and and what i'm starting to realize is there there are really people who are just so skilled at content mm-hmm. and constant content and uh and making this data you know which is really mm-hmm. all it is is data and analytics now and that's what people are looking for and mm-hmm. it, it almost feels like the the commodity now is um is attention not music mm-hmm. you know
2: it, yeah right I get that. Yeah. Sort of maintaining some like position within the general conversation that's going on or something like that. I yeah.
0: Guess. It's it's more about like a presence, I guess, just like a constant presence, you know?
2: Yeah. That, that's not fun for me.
0: No, that sounds terrible. Like it does. Yeah. Like I'm all about like laying back in the cut, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do all that. But,
2: yeah. Yeah. Well, we were, we we were, we were. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we've turned down streaming things over the past mm. 18 months or whatever. It just, I don't know that it didn't, it just doesn't feel the same to me or doesn't, doesn't feel. I, I guess at this point, honestly, it comes down to like, we, there's really, especially now, no reason to do anything other than things that feel fun to do, right, I guess, sure. maybe. At this and point. so. So maybe we're a little bit curmudgeonly in in our assessment of what's going to be fun and what's not going to be fun, you know?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, to me, you know, a band like you, you did the legwork at the time when you needed to do the legwork. It was just a different kind of legwork, you Mm -hmm. know? And that's where I just feel – I don't feel bad for young kids because I think this is just what they know and understand. The same way that – like when I started getting into music and booking shows Mm -hmm. and doing bands – I would laugh at all you motherfuckers with like the eight and a half by 11 glossies, you know, that showed up like, like, I'm like, where the fuck are these photos coming from? They're like, every venue in America was just covered in eight yeah, and a half yeah. by 11 glossies. Yeah. And I came like right after that where I was like, this is ridiculous. This is how you people book shows. What a waste, you know? So the
2: pos- uh, you know. the postage alone, you know, Oh, a yeah.
0: I'm like, where are you getting the money for for photo paper? First off, I'm stealing copies from Office Max, you know.
2: Yeah, but- I, I've, i you know, I've, I'm probably too old school in this in my assessment of like, you know, what's worth doing and not worth doing. I, I still like try and hold on to the idea or hope that, you know, the opportunity still exists for somebody to build their thing by packing rooms in their hometown, you know. But now, you know, people with everything that's going on in COVID and you know, 18 months or two years in the life of a college student that I'm talking with, you know, like Mm -hmm. COVID is like a huge piece of, of their musical experience now, you know, and Uh it's sort of like, it's sort of hard to talk about, like, yeah, we'll just like build a fan base and you know, put on great shows. And that was that was when I when I started doing I, I did uh, r at Side One, which is probably where the first time I met you, Benny, yeah, was, think of us was through the Side One gig. Yep. And um, seeing I saw Gaslight at that first show at the scene in Glendale.
0: <laughs> oh, you were at the scene bar,
2: of course. Yeah, I was yeah. there.
0: That's why It was like you. Like seven people from side one, yeah, and my aunts, <laughs> my aunts Leslie and Mary were there, we're wearing right. gas wearing gaslight shirts. They're so cute.
2: Oh, they were your aunts. Those we are my afraid, aunts. Yeah, we were we were afraid they were from another label. That was why we ah. came. We went so hard for you guys.
0: <laughs> Those are my aunts wearing gaslight shirts, and we went and stayed at their stayed at their house after.
2: But but anyway, it was like that time <laughs> when like you know like oh, I don't even know. Hollywood undead, or something like that, like right. two million fi- yeah, friends yeah, What yeah. were they called light like friends on that i don 't even remember on oh, um, on the MySpace. myspace friends were they friends I think I so it. yeah I
1: think so. <laughs>
2: yeah yeah, um but it's like like crazy numbers like that, and there were a lot of things like that, and people would send us things tips or or you know maybe a a lawyer somewhere or a manager would check the, hey, check this out, this band and, and and at that time it was sort of like you know you'd check out their their myspace was their thing and you know, there was a lot of that focus on like, wow, look at all these people who have liked this or who are, have friended these, this band or something like that. But, but it's like, I, sometimes I'd go and see that stuff and I'm like, but there are no shows booked, you know, or or like how many people will, how many people will pay $10 to see you in your own hometown? And I'm, I I just have had a hard time like letting go of the idea that that's more valuable or like kind of important in some way that, you know, to be a fan in the vert, in the, physical world as opposed to the virtual world requires more commitment mm-hmm. and so it's sort of like a different level of investment that you'll find with people who are plopping down money for t-shirts and all that kind of stuff
1: yeah
2: um true. but i think in ultimately what it comes down to is it's like it's not either or it's like all of the above i guess you should be that's doing right or something like something like that yeah yeah would probably be better advice for people you know
0: right Because, I mean, I've even, you know, I've even been saying, like, listen, like, this still has to go back to the art. Like, all the Mm -hmm. content creation you're making has to lead back to something. And a couple Mm -hmm. people I've talked to recently were like, eh, not so much. (laughs) I'm like, Jesus Christ, this has gone farther than I thought. You know? (laughs) Yeah. So, there's one thing I got to talk about before I lose you, just (laughs) because it was such a magical thing for me in my life. Okay. How did the clueless opportunity come about and can you just talk a little about like your experience on (laughs) like going there and like playing on the set like what was that like?
2: well we had uh we had um 40 ounces of of beer with us i remember that like like we you know what kind
0: Mall or oh, no it was, mall? It
2: would have been but It would have been Bud oh, for right, us okay. at that point. But um, <laughs> somebody said, somebody made a comment about it, and we said they were sub sandwiches. <laughs> 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 no, it's a, it's a it's steak your and brown cheese. paper bag, and <laughs> yeah, it's steak and cheese. Um... <laughs> A uh, couple old was,
0: sandwich guys show up, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah,
2: there, there were. T- I, if I recall correctly, there were a couple connections there. But the director Amy Heckerling maybe knew something of the Bostones, but I, I think that I th- I I feel like maybe the music supervisor might have been uh, somebody that we knew to um, Karen Glauber but I, I could be wrong. Ah, oh,
1: Karen Glauber shout out.
2: Uh, was, can, can someone Google that? Whether she was the the music supervisor on that, she might up. not have been. Sure. I, have no, I have no idea. <laughs> um, I think of her as being, a, 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 you know, becoming friends around that time. But so, for whatever reason, somebody knew about us and thought that we would be a good band to play in the party. And uh, it was a it was an interesting experience for us. Um, I'm you know, sorry,
0: the Google is saying that it was Karen Rackman. Who's oh. the music supervisor.
2: Yeah, Karen Rackman. Who's got yeah.
0: quite a I mean, I'm talking
2: pulp fiction, boogie yeah. nights. Well, there you go. Yeah, quite okay. an
0: IMDb here.
2: Well, I had the Karen part right at least. Yeah. Um, but so uh I remember like they couldn't get the play back loud enough for the for Joe Royce, you uh, know, cuz sure. like yeah. he was like pounding away on his drums and so we were kind of out of sync and I I remember personally being like sort of like um agitated by the way the people were dancing like I, wanted them to, <laughs> right. I wanted them to dance more like that's not how people dance at our shows was kind of like my panic in that moment and they were know? just like they were what extras they're like yeah they're just extras and you know they're can't you skank yeah. there's a whole other aesthetic that they're trying to kind of right. hit yeah. that has nothing to do with sure us.
0: not a flat cap in sight yeah. yeah. Right.
2: <laughs> and so, uh, it was, it was, it was an just sort of an awkward experience that yeah. s- seemed to go on, gone, gone for a long, long time. You know, I remember, <laughs> I remember there was at one point me, there was me and Nate, the guitar player, we're going to be in a, a scene, an extra scene somehow. Like it was determined that we would be, um, go we were we were to be like the extras who were going to the party the band members that were going to the after party with the guy Uh. from the movie but i remember getting pulled aside beforehand and and like um someone either our manager and or someone from the production um they were like well you you need to know that um that the character that you're going to the party with is gay and so that it could be um somebody could perceive that you're like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, listen, once, once I've, once I've lived through a, an eight hour shoot of people dancing like that to my music, yeah. there's, there's nothing you can say to me that's going to make me worry about doing anything else here. Yeah. Today, yeah. You know? That's
0: not the deal breaker. Yeah. <laughs> that's
2: not, the, yeah. But I just thought, you know, it just seemed like it, uh, thinking about it now. Oh uh, yeah. Like,
0: that's such an archaic thing. This
2: yeah, thing right? yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, but anyway, yeah. So, 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 uh, it was, it was, it was a wild experience and, you know, ultimately, uh, an interesting thing. It's, it's one of the things talking about teaching up in that music program. I've been there 12 years now for for a long long time the the one sort of cultural shared cultural cultural reference point that i had with my students was the warp tour
0: you know what i mean because like
2: they would be rolling into their freshman year having gone and you know kind of like had a sense of what that was and uh, knew who Kevin Lyman was, and you know, I was I brought him to the school one year, and all that kind of stuff. But now that's gone, you know. Like we, the, the Warp Tour is—it's been enough years now that I don't have students who really have any sense of what that was. But Clueless is always kind of at least there as like, oh, the band from Clueless. <laughs> right. Oh, yes, I get it. Yeah,
0: yeah, because <laughs> yeah, that movie's aging into the next generation. I
2: think. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's like it's uh it turned out to be like a cool movie. Oh, it's yeah. great. you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And how did the uh
0: who pitched the crowd surf?
2: Uh I don't think anyone pitched that. That I, I that, think that, that was, was just
0: part of the part of the script.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, you you get a couple sub sandwiches into a, a long day <laughs> shoot. <and laughs> you'll find the uh the courage for that kind of stuff. Liquid you know?
0: sub courage?
2: Yeah, I don't think anyone pitched that. I think Dicky just did that. Oh, really? I think so, or, or 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 maybe I don't know. Maybe he cued them in to catch him. I don't, I, I really don't remember, <laughs> but I don't I don't recall I don't recall a creative conversation about it. Let's put it that way.
0: Well, it might have been the thing that brought crowd surfing to the mainstream because mm. I don't remember seeing it in any other context outside um, of going to shows before that,
2: right? Yeah, well, or or Eddie Vedder maybe might have had some <laughs> part in that. That's you know. Oh yeah, a, or a those- short time. Pearl Jam videos were
0: there. before that. Yeah. It
2: was close to the same time. No, it was though. after. It was after, Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, you, you, guys guys
2: yeah. you guys invented it. You guys invented it. Sure. So Joe, <laughs> before we, we
1: before we go, I wanna I'm an avoid one thing fan. I I really I remember when you uh did that first CD and I was like it's like it sounded like, okay, this is pretty obvious. He needed to get this out of his system. And mm. um I listened to the la- the last one recently. I guess I think I listened to it when it came out, but I hadn't heard it. And it's like, um, it seems like therapy. I mean, mm-hmm, yeah. Is that like, is it something you got to do? And are you going to do more records? And is there more I, Avoid I, One Thing coming?
2: I, I don't know. I don't know if there's more Avoid One Thing, but I'm always working on music. You know, right. I mean, that, that sort of like, sort of. Uh, situation where me and dickie were writing all the you know most of the tunes together for the new record and really hammering away every day you know it was like i'd send him something new in the morning and he'd send me something in in return by the the afternoon oh wow i kind of kept that going you know so i i mean i'm 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 always kind of working on songs and i've already been sending dick some stuff and i have other things kicking around i i don't i don't know what it'll be i i love the the idea of um of writing songs with or for other bands is something all I've always oh, yeah. been interested in, but I haven't really pursued much. Um, and so I, 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 mean, I, I have those thoughts, you know, maybe I could do some of that, but, um, the avoid one thing last record was very much so. I mean that I, I wrote the songs on that record, um, over the course of probably 15 years or more, oh, wow. it, you know, uh, um, and, um, you know, there were, you know, there were some things on there that, that felt like I wanted to get off my chest, I guess you could say. Um, but so, yeah, it, it felt good. And, um, it was, it was a fun project to do. Again, that was another Paul Coldry thing. And I'm still friends with the avoid folks. We had, it was cool. We had a, um, you know, one thing that we never really, and this is probably in part due to the bouncing souls is, you know, we we kind of got a little bit more known after the fact because of mm. the "Lean On Sheena" was the sure. song from the "Avoid yep. One Thing" record, that first record that they ended up doing, and so I think more people became aware of the band, and so we put that record out, and you know, we had a a, a cool little packed show at. um Great Scott! In Boston, oh, that place is great. Yeah, it's great. And we never had that when you know when we were out there before. It's like you know we never we never felt that where um, people knew the songs and that kind of thing. So we had that, and we were actually gonna we were supposed to do some some dates that next summer with the explosion. Oh wow! Um, But COVID.
1: Yeah.
2: So um, I don't really know. We 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 text about playing gigs sometimes, but part of me feels like "Ah, man. That, that that gig was would be a perfect sort of end to it all you know <laughs> right. on some level you know but um i suppose if an opportunity arises and it seems like fun i it would certainly be cool to play music with those people again
0: lean on sheena what a great fucking song um where do like where do where do songs start for you what instrument uh, do, are you melody first do you notes first like like what usually kicks off it, an idea for you
2: it's just chords and melody, fake words is pretty okay. much it. And you know, something like Sheena, um, it took me a long time to. It, it, writing lyrics is is very hard. It's much easier for me to write like a catchy melody and mm. you know, I whip together a structure of a song won't take me long at all. But to make those noises and and notes make sense in the context of of a song and to write lyrics is something that's really hard for me and. Uh-huh um and 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 you know something that's also really fun about the way me and Dicky work together is that he writes all the lyrics and I write the music you right know? And, um so i I haven't always had practice doing that but
0: um, oh right sure
2: it's it's an interesting you know it's a different it's a different animal to try and to try and write words for something and it's much more slower and um I write a lot of bad lyrics in the process and <laughs> um it's uh it's tough you know it's tough to come up with 12 songs of lyrics that are worth people listening to is is yeah, is right. is, a hard, is a hard thing a you know but,
0: sounds like you have a great partnership then when does oh, yeah. when does the um how are the horn parts like written and composed who who comes up with those and when do they get placed
2: um it depends there there are some songs on on the last record and all the records that I I write them you know I've you know like uh, I don't know a song like Impression or Rascal King like those are I wrote those those horn parts on guitar or ah, just see. by hum, humming or whistling or or that kind of thing just yeah, kind yeah. of teaching um but on this last record I our sax player Leon Silva um did a lot of the uh, did a lot of the writing and um he is um he's just you know Whole other level. He um, he's he's the best musician I've ever played with. Wow, really? Wow. Oh, by oh, yeah. And and, you know, I played a lot of good. Oh, handley. Wow. He he um he play he he's in he's a Tennessee kid. So he played he tours with Justin Timberlake. Oh, okay. And he's part of that whole crew, and he plays with some really amazing musicians in L.A. And
1: did the last um, record? Was it the one that had like some pedal steel on it? Yep. Who played that?
2: I wasn't I wasn't I was in LA for everything but the very oh. last little bits and so that would would have been a friend of Ted's probably wow. came in and played on that. that um, was interesting. But yeah, did. so the record When God was When God was great came out in May is the is the record I'm talking right. about. And uh so they come from different places, you know, some of them have been written by other horn players throughout the years. Um our guitar player Nate when he would write songs, he would write mm-hmm. horn parts as guitar licks and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I don't know, just sort of trial and error and what sounds right. And, yeah. And all that. But I will say like, there's a horn language and a finesse to it, mm. um, that can't really, um, be captured with a guitar, or a, you know, humming right. or whist- Whistling kind of vibe. There's just so much more that goes into it. And, um, I, have become more and more aware of of that like the difference between a you know an A plus horn player and an A horn player or whatever um working with Leon I mean all, all, everyone in our band's fantastic fantastic musician but um Leon is a uh, is a whole other level you know That's awesome That's great Yeah he's great he's really amazing
0: And for me I I want to finish up with this just cuz you know you have such a a vast experience with songwriting with different bands and Um, you know, one thing we talk about sometimes on here is, is when, when an idea goes from, you know, like the table to the song, like, and when you trust your instinct enough to know that something is good and worth that time, um, when do you know, and, and how is, and do you trust your instinct more, you know, these days than you used to?
2: Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I like the idea of, of trusting those instincts. And, and I think that sometimes people have to be careful not to sort of sand the edges off of those initial instincts, you know, mm-hmm. cause pre-production, there's so many chances to fuck something up and yeah. making a record and, right. and pro tools makes it even easier for you to fuck things up. Sure. do, you know, yeah. cause like, when is it done? You know, there's just so much you can, you can do yeah. and right. all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, I love that. I love I love when things kind of feel like they fall together and in and that way. And, and certainly, there are um, a bunch of songs on that new record where you know they just me and me and Dick got them together really sort of quickly, like immediately. There was a sense of like, oh man, there's there's something cool here. Nice. You feel you feel it, you know. And so if if um I, the, you know there are probably 50, there are 15 songs on that record, um you know maybe me and Dickie probably wrote ten of them. And, uh, there are probably another 10 that me and Dick wrote that, you know, were just other things, you know, that we demoed out. By the time we went into the studio, um, with Tim Armstrong and Ted to work on this, this last record, I mean, th- those songs had been recorded on, in home studio fashion, probably two or three times, you know, mm-hmm. me and Dickie are always, we're, we're, working on the arrangement We're we're trying different bridges or, you know, just kind of mucking around with things. So, um, the instincts is good, but it, I think it, it sometimes only gets you so far and then it comes kind of comes back to that, you know, outcome, of the wolves kind of song craft kind of a thing, right. you know, like well, sometimes you just gotta, um, you gotta come up with something simple that, 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 um, it, it may not, it may not knock people over, but it works or it connects in sort of a, a more subtle kind of way you know or something
0: like that sure sure you got trusted enough not to fuck with it right
2: yeah, yeah. you know so to, to try and maybe carry that initial inspiration and that uh, those that your, your first initial instinctual idea to try and carry it, as much of that as you can across the finish line but um, you know, you have to also be able to stand back and and recognize that sometimes there are better ideas in the room too. Yes, you know, so that that gets into a little of like the ego of you know of your idea or the protecting <laughs> right. the idea and all that kind of stuff. And this is where bands tend to struggle a little bit with you know territoriality about who writes things and all that kind of stuff. You know, yeah, right, right, right.
1: Well, you know, having your singer sing into his cell phone might actually be a positive thing because
2: mm-hmm. he was
1: singing it into Pro Tools and chopping it all up. You'd might, yeah, you right. might lose all of the initial vibe that you're talking about.
2: Yeah. yeah, That's true.
0: Exactly. I guess you're getting the rawest of the raw take there, right? Yeah, uh-huh. It's <laughs> kind of
1: like a handheld cassette recorder.
2: Oh, um, believe me, you should hear this shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joe,
0: thanks for taking all that time. Maybe we we've Love had it. We've
2: had you for 90 minutes. That was fun. Hey. It's great to talk to you. you I I think you have at least 5 or 6 good minutes of, of stuff <laughs> here.
0: It was it was great man. I'm, I love picking your brain and and getting to the back of this and thanks for writing uh so many songs over the years that I love.
2: Yeah, well thank you. It's it's great to connect with you guys again. But I was thinking t- today Brad, I couldn't remember who who was the, the other band or other bands on that tour that you guys did with us. We you did remember? a
1: few tours with you, but were the shods on one of them? Oh, what were they?
2: Oh, my God. That probably. Hey, I, I don't know. why. The how shods were mean.
1: definitely like that. We definitely did some shows with them and you guys, which was fucking I love those guys.
2: Yeah, so good. Do
1: you remember when you guys did uh, you got inducted to something in Boston and you insisted that Joe Strummer that you wouldn't do it unless Joe Strummer presented you? It was like the key <laughs> yeah. to the city.
2: Whoa! Where, where 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 do we get off? Where was we that what off? it was? The key to the city? Uh, no, it was a it was a, a plaque on the sidewalk. It was like the oh. Boston Rock <laughs> Hall of Fame kind of thing, and it was in front of Tower Records. Right. which, By the way, only lasted another year right. or two after this. But so there was uh, Aerosmith had a, had this. It's like a like a platinum kind of. Uh, sewer cover. <laughs> like right. 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 With a star in the middle, and um, there was an Aerosmith one, and there was a New Kids on the Block one, and there was a Bostons one. And we said to – our label asked us who, who we would in – in our dream world, who we would like to present us with this thing. And I don't know who had the gall to suggest Joe Strummer. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, was, I was thinking Dino from The Clowns for Progress would have been great. Would have been just great, <laughs> um, but uh, it, somehow it all happened. I mean, the, somebody paid him probably. Yeah. I don't. I they don't flew know. I don't know. But they flew him in, and what? and like that. Yeah, dude. There was like he came in, and next thing you know, I was having dinner with him and Bob <gasps> Gruen, and his, wow. Joe's wife was there, and um, so there was this little. To do on the steps of Tower Records, which is right on the corner of Newbury Street and Mass Ave, which is, by the right. way, was really like the heart and soul of our of our flying Elmer's glue flying <laughs> route it was right through there. Newbury Street was yeah. was the center of that, um, and so whatever it was, the Boston's, you know, I, I I don't remember it that well. I I have a picture of me and uh, Joe in the uh, adult video section of Tower Records together (laughs) somewhere. And, um, and then, but the cool thing was like that later that night, like he didn't, he didn't disappear, you know, back to the hotel. It was like, there was another event at the Middle East. Oh, we were presenting the Middle East with a platinum plaque that was a, another there was another event that night it was like for the middle east and if you ever go to a show at the upstairs in the middle east they have they have a boston's plaque up there
1: ah, okay. but um
2: but so joe was around for that so he was around for that and talking to everybody and taking pictures with everybody oh. and being as as open and as cool as you would hope joe strummer would be and you know everyone you know has a story about meeting joe strummer and they're all good stories yeah you know what I mean? True. there aren't there aren't bad stories about meeting Joe Strummer because that's the kind of person he was, right? But so he didn't, but the, so at the Middle East, but now there's an after party and there's a thing across the the street at this like kind of dance place and now he's at that and like, you know, and so like people hung out with him until two, three in the morning or whatever it was and like he really kind of like um, really embraced the whole experience. But you Dude, know? you're
1: totally and, leaving out a part of it because right after the ceremony, it was all kind of a clusterfuck of like press and all these people who were around, and one somebody came over and grabbed me, and was like, "Come on, we're good. we got to get Joe out of here. This is just too, it's too crazy." And like we, the Boston's and we, the clowns had come up. I think Jesse might have been there, Jesse Malin, yeah, and um, right. We went around the corner. Yeah, Jesse was,
2: at, I think, was at the dinner with Bob Gruen. I think Jesse might have.
1: We went to a VFW, and it was like. <laughs> This like basement VFW and just hung yeah. out in there. This was like in the afternoon. That was what I was thinking because I just remember Kevin from the shots, like just sitting two seats away from Joe, just staring at him the whole time, like too afraid to even like talk to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Joe was like yeah. holding court. He would talk to anybody. He seemed to, uh-huh. and like he seemed to genuinely be enjoying it,
2: which mm-hmm.
1: was, which was yeah. the crazy part about
2: it. I think that I think he's one of those people who really enjoyed talking to people and like meeting people and stuff. Yeah.
0: Maybe that's really. why he was partially Joe Strummer, huh? He <laughs> <laughs> knew yeah, how to I work guess. a room.
2: <laughs> I guess <Perhaps>. that helps. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. Joe, what a beautiful guy.
1: Yeah, for real.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you're a
1: beautiful guy too, Joe. And again, <laughs> thank you for doing this. It's really yeah. been fun to chat and to catch up. And um, yeah, we'll do it again sometime, maybe face to face.
2: Yeah, thank you guys so much, man. All right,
0: thanks, Joe. Have a great night. It was fun.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I just want to, I just want to like, one thing I need to clear my name of, I never wore clown makeup. I was the catalyst. <laughs> I was the catalyst yep. for taking that makeup off. Much to Dickie's chagrin, I might say, because those guys had done shows with the Bostones before I came on board. Uh-huh. And we kind of like changed over the whole band. We show up at the first show in Providence, I think it was. And then Dickie is having this conversation with Dino. He's like... So, uh, you guys, uh, you don't wear the, the makeup anymore. Huh? And Dino's like, nah, nah, we got rid of that. It was kind of gimmicky. He's like, oh, okay. So, uh, and no pyros? Nah, we don't really <laughs> do the pyros anymore, Dickie. He's like, oh, okay. But you're still like a total wise ass to the audience, right? <laughs> so he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do that. Dick, can do that.
0: Okay. Like, oh, okay.
1: He was disappointed that he, he was. He seemed to so be he disappointed
0: asked you to come open, and he wanted yeah. some some over the top clowns yeah. to show up. He,
1: but they they took us out again, so it wasn't. Uh, yeah, he wasn't disappointed. He was always taking yourself it.
0: so seriously, Brad. You know, <laughs> you can't just put on a little clown makeup. Are we talking full like clown like those like guys, insane clown posse not, deal?
1: Yeah, those guys did just like full face makeup, and then they used to wear like. Like white tuxedos.
0: They did good. they invent
1: the juggalo? <laughs> oh, maybe it was. Oh no!
0: <laughs> what have we discovered?
1: It was. there was a rather parallel timeline. I mean, those guys must have started like they started doing stuff like early '90s, like maybe like '93. Who are we
0: talking about? Clowns for Progress and ICP clowns. right now. Okay,
1: and like I, ICP like started about the same time. I think so. Did
0: they really? They're yeah.
1: that old. It was a fairly parallel Let's
0: progression. When did they start? Oh wow. They started in nineteen eighty nine. Oh really? Yeah. Insane Saint Clown Posse. Oh okay.
1: credit. So they got they got the jump. And so they beat you? They beat
0: the clowns. You, I guess. I guess you were you were influenced I, by ICP then. I might I be say.
1: misrepresenting, but uh I wasn't in the band. Now. That's what I'm saying. I right, didn't join right. the clowns until like ninety seven. Right, right. But you
0: know what uh another little tidbit I heard in another interview it was on the uh I think in March, um, Chris from Less and Jake interviewed Joe and Dickie just talking about impression that I get. It's actually a fun podcast. Oh, really? And uh, yeah, yeah. And um, you know, they went through the song, you know, in detail. And apparently, the people working on the album had had worked on Radiohead "Creep," and uh, you know, the famous
1: "Yeah,"
0: you know, the part in "Creep." Uh, you know, those people were really excited that it was this like epic entry into the chorus. So, when they were doing Impression That I Get, they thought like they needed some like epic entry into the chorus, and then that's where the Dicky scream came from. It oh. comes like the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> and like, and you hear it now. And so, apparently, that was influenced by creep, that's like directly.
1: Really, that's really weird.
0: pretty cool, huh? That is cool. Yeah, I learned a lot on that.
1: I got to give some big shout outs here though because as we started to say, I really thought I had Chris Doherty nailed down to be our mystery friend and I should have checked to see I think maybe he might have just had family in town, but I did hear sort of rumor that maybe he wasn't in the best of shape. So I'm wishing him the best of health. I hope that, you know, he was just hanging with family and that was why we didn't get him yeah. to be our mystery friend. But um shout out to Chris and to Dave Minahan who was working hard to make this happen who's also a legendary boston rocker and a brilliant engineer producer thanks Dennis too. and uh, Evan also who were trying to make some stuff happen for this
0: all right so everyone needs to you know boston's are 11
1: albums in you can find their information
0: yeah so but they are touring in september on the new album when god was great and they are still great. The record is good.
1: It's a fun record. It really sounds cool. I, I love the sound of it. And uh, mm-hmm.
0: so, still not disappointing, making good albums. So, yeah. go, go get it. Go see stones, them. Man. Just listen to the Boston's. My personal favorite, don't know how to party, but it's just because it's the first one I ever heard, you know?
1: <laughs> Follow Joe at Joe Gittleman on Instagram and, um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe take a class from him.
0: Yes. <laughs> Anyone in the Northern Vermont area, Look at the class schedule. There's some interesting stuff. Apparently you can be one of the first students in contemporary issues in music management. So,
1: And avoid one thing. Do not avoid mm. avoid one thing. Go listen no, to avoid one please thing. please don't. Please don't. You'll be happy you did.
0: And maybe rate and review our program. Yeah, you could do that. Uh, sexually explicit reviews
1: only. <laughs> no, that's not true. Just leave a nice <laughs> review.
0: Just leave a nice <laughs> review. Try to make it sexy. And we have the Patreon. Uh, the chat had to be canceled last week. I apologize. It was a tornado, an actual tornado. It was an active act By my house. And we were without power for like 36 hours. And I, uh, you know, the kid who grew up in an apartment was figuring out how to operate a generator in the pouring rain. Um, and uh, it smelled like gasoline. But I pulled it off.
1: Congratulations. Figured
0: it out. We're alive. You know? You, you, Didn't have to throw away our food. You're a good provider, Benny. I try. I try. <laughs> the one problem with me is that I got to get, I got to start being happier while I'm doing it. Because <laughs> I'm such a miserable prick when I have to do it. Because all I'm thinking is, I don't want to do this. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So that's the trick. That's the trick. I actually got to be okay with it, you know?
1: Just think about how vital you are to the survival of that little tribe. Mm, that's
0: sweet. Thanks, Brad. all right well thanks to everyone thanks to joe thanks to dickie and uh i don't know we'll see you next time